Have you been looking at this beautiful moon? Huh? It's a super moon, they call it, or a, a super snow moon this time around, they, they refer to. It's going gonna, it's gonna to peak uh, tomorrow uh, afternoon. And, uh, of course, this is when the moon uh, is, and our orbit are at their closest uh, proximity to each other. And so the moon appears increasingly large. Last night it was, it was gorgeous. And, you know, I don't know about you, but it's one of those things where you just, you know, just kind of day by day you don't notice the moon very much, right? It just kind of, yep, there's the moon, right? But then when it gets really big, you start to notice it, don't you? Wow, look at that moon. And you start to see things that you didn't see before. And so you tend to maybe look at it a little bit more closely. And if somebody had a telescope and they could point it at the moon and could invite you to come and take a look at it, well, you'd, you'd probably be captivated indeed, wouldn't you? Because you would be noticing all those nooks and crannies and craters and shadows on that, on that moon that you don't normally see when we're just seeing it in its usual orbit. It's more captivating looking through that telescope. Well, this is what the book of Hebrews is. The book of Hebrews is a telescope. It's as if the author had set up a, a, a powerful telescope, focused it on the glory of Jesus Christ, and invites us to see Him so that our hearts can be captivated, captivated by His being. He's, he's writing to people in the late 60s, before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, he's writing to Jewish believers who are facing persecution and immense pressure for following Christ. They're paying a price for looking to Jesus as the Messiah, and they are being tempted to fall away. So he's spending this book both warning them not to fall away but giving them a great reason not to fall away by pointing that telescope as at Jesus Christ. He knows that in order for them to endure, in order for them to persevere, they need an ever-growing, soul-captivating vision of Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way, no believer can cope with adversity unless Christ fills the horizons, fills his horizons, sharpens his priorities, and dominates his experience. If we're going to persevere, then we need Christ to fulfill or to fill our horizons in every way. The writer's goal is to set before these people he's writing to, to set before them the superior glory of Jesus Christ, the final and full Word of God. He wants them to understand that all they have known before, <clears throat> all that they have heard before, are fragments. They are fragments and shadows of the living God. And that full reality, the everlasting, final redemption and unfailing hope, those are to be found in Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also <coughs> he created the world. God speaks. He communicates. He reveals himself. The writer mentions the prophets that God spoke through, <clears throat> but those prophets spoke in fragments. They spoke in fragments. No prophet could ever provide a full revelation of who God is. Isaiah could tell us something <clears throat> about His holiness. Amos could tell us something about His justice. And Hosea could tell us something about His love, His faithful love. But all of these were speaking to a specific time and place, and they were speaking out of their experience of the Holy Spirit interacting with them. They were speaking out of their experience with God, not as God. They spoke in fragments, in pictures, in partial revelations. But now, God has spoken to us, the writer says, by His Son. When the writer says, in the last days, or these last days, <clears throat> he's not speaking of the end times. He's not talking about the return of Christ. He is speaking of the process of God's revelation of Himself. It began long ago. It was fragmentary in many ways, in many times, over many hundreds and hundreds of years, God was speaking and bringing about a revelation of Himself. But now, the last days of that process have happened. The last days of that process have arrived. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come. That's what was lacking. The prophets spoke all through those years, but the fullness of time had not yet come. But Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son. Jesus said it this way in Mark's Gospel. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There will be no further revelation of who God is in the days to come. No matter how long they are, Jesus is the final, the full and glorious revelation of God because He is God. And there can be no greater word than that. The writer isn't diminishing the Old Testament prophets. He's not criticizing them, quite the contrary. They spoke the Word of God as the Holy Spirit moved through them. Peter tells us that in one of his letters, that they spoke the Holy Spirit in them, searching out the <clears throat> fullness of time to come in Christ. But, but they were simply speakers of the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. He is not a message about God. He is God. 
He is the glory of God, the perfections of God, the majesty of God, the beauty of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the character of God incarnated in flesh to dwell among us as the final revelation, the final word of God about Himself. The disciple Philip looked at Jesus one day and he said to, he said to him, Master, just show us the Father. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And what did Jesus reply? He said, Philip, have, have you been so long with me and you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Six powerful truths about Jesus Christ. Let's look in that telescope. Let's focus because the writer wants us to look at these things. So let me read one again and then we'll keep reading. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these final days He has spoken to us by His Son. Now watch, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Six great truths about our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, He is the heir of all things. That should sound familiar to you. <laughs> that should sound familiar to you. Psalm 2 is that prophetic psalm. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. I will give you all things as your inheritance. Jesus is the heir of all things and we are gratefully co-heirs with him. Number two, he is the creator of the world. Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. John chapter 1, in the first three verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things. All things. How many things? All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Never forget this. This is important Bible doctrine. God is the, is the genesis of creation, but the Son, the Word, acts as the agent of creation as the Holy Spirit broods over the whole thing. But Jesus is the creator of the world. Number three, He is the radiance of God's glory. Not a reflection of God's glory. He is original light. He is original glory. His glory is the glory of God in flesh. Glimpsed in the transfiguration, in that moment when He revealed Himself, and showed His glory to three of His disciples. They glimpsed it. That glory revealed 
just for a little bit, but one day to be revealed to all because the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 about Jesus Christ, he said this, the light, the light, the radiance, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. He is original light. That's why in the Nicene Creed we say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Number four, He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Uh, the writer here uses <clears throat> a Greek word that found its way into our English vocabulary. In our English vocabulary, it's the word character. And we use it to <clears throat> talk about the, uh, the, the moral qualities that somebody would have. They're truthful, they're honest, they have integrity, uh, they're, they're people of good character. But that's not how the word originated. The way that, where the word originated was this. It spoke of the imprint that a dye made upon a mold when it was, when it was a, a, a printing. It was the dye that was used to stamp an image on a coin. And so when you pulled the dye away and you looked at the coin, the image on the coin was the exact representation of what was on the die. This is what the writer is saying about Jesus. The author here is ex he's, he's expressing or addressing the uniqueness of Jesus. He is God, but He is the God-man. He is the Word. The Word made flesh. The Word made flesh. He is of the same eternal Trinitarian glory as the Father and the Holy Spirit in His flesh, in His humanity. As you see Him on the shores of Galilee, as you see Him teaching on the hillsides and healing the sick and delivering the demon-possessed and feeding the 5,000 and walking upon the waters and raising the dead, as you see this wonderful, extraordinary man, you are looking at an exact imprint of God in His flesh. That's why Jesus could say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he was an exact imprint, a trustworthy representation of all that God is. How are you doing? Are you feeding on the Word this morning? Good? Okay, look here. Number five. Number five. He is the sovereign Shepherd. He is the sovereign shepherd. You say, Jeff, where do you get that, that line from? I'll tell you where I get it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power. This extraordinary God man, even in his incarnate 
state is by a word holding everything together. In fact, when it says that He created all things, the word the writer uses is this. He created the ages. He created the ages. In other words, He created everything within time and space. Nothing outside of His creative power and nothing outside of His sovereign control. His sovereign control. He is upholding and holding together the universe by the word of His power. I know you think that there are laws of nature, but let me tell you, it's the word of God that is holding all things together. I want you to think of the shepherd who's, who's carrying a lamb. When you see that, a picture of a shepherd carrying a lamb, there is a, there's a destination in mind. While he holds the lamb, he is moving in a direction with the lamb. And that word upholds, the word carries in it, in its definition, the idea not simply of upholding, but the word definitely suggests that he is upholding and carrying. He is moving. He is in going in a direction. In other words, God has a plan. And that plan will not be derailed. Jesus is holding all things together by the word of His power. But He's not just standing still trying to hold it. He is carrying it. He's not like Atlas just standing there. He is mighty God. And He is carrying all things in all the ages. And He's carrying you. He's carrying you, John, to the plans He has for you. He's carrying you, Kevin. He's got a plan and a purpose and a direction. And He has you. And He is carrying you. Paul said it this way, He who has begun a good work in you, Beth, will complete it. He will complete it. No one can snatch you out of His hands. He is carrying you the universe, and He's carrying you. You, my friend, are in mighty, sovereign hands. And then number six, He is the final high priest. He is the final high priest. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The entire book's going to talk about the purification aspect, so I'm not going to go down that road right now, but I just want to note this. The writer says that after he made purification, he sat down at the right hand of God. There are three offices within the Old Testament Scripture that are revealed to us. One is prophet. Jesus is the final prophet. God has spoken to us in these days by His Son. He is the full and final Word of God. He is prophet. Jesus is King. He's in the line of 
Davidic kings. He's in the line of a natural order of kings. But here's what makes him really a king is that he created everything. So he owns everything. He is in control of everything. He is guiding everything. He is caring. He rules in power and in might. No earthly king can hold the candle to him. He is prophet. He is king. And the third office was what? Priest. Priest offered sacrifices. Came to the table and offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. Jesus, after making purification, sat down. See, Jesus is the final prophet. He is the final and everlasting king. And he is the ultimate priest of God. He is prophet. He is king. He is priest. Things that were handled by many different people in many different roles are summed up together and held together in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the prophet who speaks. He's the king who reigns. And he's the priest who made offering for our sins and sat down. You say, Jeff, you keep saying sat down. What's the big deal about sitting down? My friend, I would invite you to go in to the holy of holies in the shadow tabernacle of the Old Testament. Go in there with the high priest and place the blood upon the Ark of the Covenant and then look around. There's no chairs. There's no chairs. There's no place for that priest to sit down because his work is never done. The old covenant priesthood had to offer and to offer and to offer and to offer shadows pointing to the great reality that was to come because a day was going to come when the king who had made all things the prophet who was coming as the final word and revelation of God would go to a cross on a hillside where he would stretch out his arms and die for the sins of the world. And the Bible tells us, and Hebrews is going to tell us, that he entered into the holy place, not the one made with hands, but into the very presence of the Trinitarian glory of God. He entered into that holy place with his blood and he sat down because there was nothing. There was nothing more to do. That is why we come to this table every week. We come to this table because He has sat down. This table reminds us of what He did for us. But as we worship, we're not worshiping. Like some do, offering, making a new offering, a new sacrifice week by week as they do in some traditions. No, no, no. We come here and we remember that on the night our Lord Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, He took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat this, all of you, in remembrance 
of me. And then after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. For I will not drink of this cup again with you until we sit down at table together in the kingdom of God in the ages to come as the mighty shepherd risen from the dead heaves the whole universe upon his shoulders and is carrying us to that very end. And we rejoice every Sunday because he has sat down. He is our prophet. He is our king. And he is our eternal high priest. Amen? Come and feed upon him by faith in your hearts with thanksgiving and be glad.